0: Thank you, Ryan, for inviting me to come to share God's word with you today. Um, it's a joy for me to be here. I enjoy every time I come. And I should be driving over, over here to worship with you anyway, you know, whether I'm preaching or not. <laughs> no, don't, I don't know why I don't do that. There's a there's great light here. <laughs> Jesus was many things in his ministry. He was a preacher. He was a healer. He was a mystic. He was a prophet. He was also a teacher, a wisdom teacher, following in a long line of wisdom teachers in the Old Testament. The psalmist, Ecclesiastes, the writer of Proverbs, the book of Job, Jewish wisdom set out two paths, basically, a path that leads to life and blessings, and a path that leads to death and woes. And we all face decisions that require us to choose one or the other, which path to take. For the Jews, the path that led to life was the path of obedience to the Torah, to the law you could call this a conventional wisdom because it involved adherence to such um, cultural norms and values as prosperity, family loyalty, patriarchy or the rule of the fathers, and um, respect and honor in the community. But Jesus taught a, a different kind of wisdom, Not conventional, but subversive. A subversive wisdom that shocked and disturbed people because it challenged many of the popular norms and values of the culture. And it was especially disturbing to those in positions of power and authority. We find Jesus' subversive wisdom at its best spelled out in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5 to 7 and in Luke chapter 6, from which our passage this morning is taken. You would expect conventional wisdom to say, love your friends, love your family, do good to those who love you and care for you and are good to you. Bless those um, who are good to you. Bless them, be good to them, pray for them. Instead, Jesus says in chapter 6 of Luke, But I say to you, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who. Who abuse you. This teaching perhaps more than any other has caused um, people to belittle Christianity as a religion of weaklings and losers. Is this teaching advising victims of spousal abuse to put up with your abuse? perhaps to try to save your marriage? Or employees, to let your employer walk all over you? Or children, not to stand up to bullies? Is this what Jesus is teaching here? To those who strike you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from those who take away your cloak, do not withhold your coat as well. Is Jesus simply teaching people to be passive victims? On the contrary, he's actually telling victims to turn their humiliation back onto the perpetrator. Take the example of the shirt and the coat. In biblical times, people wore a long uh, linen undershirt. And then over top of the undershirt, they wore a, um, a thick woolen cloak over an overgarment that they often used to uh, as a blanket at night for sleeping. Now, if you were taken to court by a creditor for not repaying your debt on time, as many poor people couldn't, Your creditor might take your woolen cloak as a pledge until you came up with the money that you owed. Jesus says, give him your undershirt as well. Can you imagine the poor debtor taking off his undershirt in the court, handing it to the creditor, and then standing there naked or near naked? But can you also imagine the creditor holding both of these garments and feeling very sheepish for his cruelty, his lack of respect for the debtor? By giving the creditor his undershirt, um, the debtor is handing back his humiliation to the creditor. And why is that? Why would Jesus be be advocating this? Well, for for the purpose of waking up the creditor, waking up the perpetrator to the implications of his behavior for his cruelty, and thereby challenging the creditor to change his ways. No change without waking up first. That goes for any of us. Jesus in his ministry was all about waking people up spiritually so that they could change their ways or be transformed. If you went to school, as I did many years ago, back in Saskatchewan, you'll remember reading a story called Jean Valjean in grade 8. I think it was grade 8. A wonderful story. I think it impacted so many young people in Saskatchewan. It's a much-condensed version of Victor Hugo's 19th-century masterpiece, Les Miserables. It's a story about Jean Valjean, a young husband and father, jobless and poor, who steals a loaf of bread to feed his family. Arrested, he's sentenced to something like five years in in prison at a place far removed from his hometown. Because of repeated attempts to escape from prison, his sentence is extended to well over 20 years. Finally, he's released, an embittered, hate-hardened, middle-aged man, one foot dragging because of the ball and chain that was attached to him. Returning to his hometown on foot after 20-some years, and goodness knows what he's going to find there, he stops for the night in a town and is given lodging at the bishop's residence. It was a cathedral town. While eating dinner with the bishop, he notices a pair of very fine-looking silver candlesticks on the mantelpiece. He gets up very early in the morning, steals the candlesticks, and then hits the road. Again, he's caught. He's brought back to the bishop's residence, fully expecting to be sent back to prison for the theft. Do you know this man, asked the police. Yes, he was my guest last night. Are these your candlesticks? Yes, they're mine. Or rather, they were mine. Did he not steal them from you? Why, no, he didn't steal them. I gave them to him. They are his. Now, some might consider the bishop to be a sentimental, wimpish fool, for letting a hardened criminal off the hook. But that depends on the values you live by. What the bishop valued most highly was the saving of souls, to love people in ways that soften their hardened hearts and restore their humanity. The bishop, as a follower of Jesus, practiced the values of the kingdom of God. Some call them the love ethic of Jesus. According to this ethic, love is not so much a feeling as it is an act of will. When saying love your enemies, Jesus isn't saying you've got to like these people. Especially those who hurt you and betray you or abuse you. Some people are very hard to like, you know that, I know that. He's saying, do love to your enemy. Do the loving thing to your enemy. Do what love requires in spite of how you feel. Love requires that we do whatever we can to further the other person's highest good which is what the bishop did, and it had a powerful, healing, life-transforming effect upon Jean Valjean. He was never the same person again. Under different circumstances, um, the loving thing to do may be to allow the person to be arrested and to face the music because that might be the only way that that person is going to wake up to his or her misbehavior and seek a different path in life. So I guess what I'm saying is um, doing the loving thing sometimes requires great discernment. Any parent knows that, raising children. When is is punishment appropriate? When is a loving hug appropriate? If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, What credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons and daughters of the Most High. For God is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. Matthew put it a little bit different in in chapter 5. He says, for God makes the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust we are to love our enemies because God does. If we are to be God's sons and daughters, then we are to love as God loves. We are to draw the circle wide to include in our community of neighbors even those who show by their actions that they are enemies of God, always with the aim of waking them up through love, to become friends of God. I know in my heart, I know in my heart that I am incapable of loving my enemies. I know that I have experienced hurt and betrayal from others. I've been deeply, deeply hurt by people, all of you have. And I know that I can't do that. I cannot love that person on my own power. I know that I can't. I have to rely on the grace of God. And I think it can happen more and more through practice. I said to Ingrid down here just now, just uh, when she had the baskets out there, and it was really hard to reach that third basket. Um, and I I called her over and I said. Maybe if, you just, if the kids can learn that they can keep practicing until they can hit that big basket over there. <laughs> Jesus closes his, um, th- this passage by saying, be merciful even as your Father in heaven is merciful. I like the translation that says, be compassionate as your Father in heaven is compassionate and as Meister Eckhart said you can you can attach many qualities to God but the highest the supreme quality of God is compassion I like this quotation which pretty well sums up the whole passage and I'll leave this with you it applies to us all friends enemies whatever it is said that God accepts you just the way you are. It is said that God accepts you just the way you are, but loves you too much to leave you there. <laughs> Take a moment of silence.